This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenevec. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern Time on Bloomberg Radio. Or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News. So a lot going on when it comes to COVID. We increasingly are seeing European nations, uh, Tim, push back on that AstraZeneca vaccine, although they're looking at it, right? And uh, kind of looking a little bit more into, and I think a lot are saying that the benefits certainly outweigh the risks of getting COVID. Yeah, that's certainly a big story. And closer to home as well, we're seeing Ohio expand vaccines to anyone over the age of 16. And even closer to home for us, Brian Granulotti is CEO of Atlantic Health Systems, joining us from just over in Morristown, New Jersey. Jersey. Um, Brian, thanks so much for, for taking the time. We, we, we love to talk to you because we like to get just an idea of what is happening at your hospitals right now. Give us an update about how things are in your health system. Sure. Um, so today we have about 150 patients uh, in our hospitals that uh, have COVID. But if you think about that back uh, in the spring, that number was about 900. Wow. Uh, so it's a big difference. And, and even from the uh, Christmas uh, surge that we had, uh, you know, we were at about 250 to 300 patients a day. So we are coexisting with COVID um, and we've been at that plateau for a while and, um, you know, we're able to care for those patients uh, safely and um, it's uh, business as usual with everything else that we do. You mentioned and used the word plateau and we've been hearing that from some of the uh, different medical professionals professionals that we've spoken to, Brian. Does that sitting at a plateau kind of bother you a little bit? You know, it does, um, because we'd love to see this um, start to straight line down. Um, But also we have to be realistic about the fact that this virus is in our communities. And because uh, people are not yet uh, immunized, um, we're going to be having this kind of level of activity. And what I'd point to... For how long? You know, I I think we're going to be in this situation... Uh, probably until May or June Mm. um, when we are able to get this vaccine into, um, you know, about 60% of the people in the community. Um, And, um, you know, that's hopefully the plan here, uh, but we're waiting on that supply. So I want to have realistic expectations about this and make sure I understand. We are going to, you think, see a plateau of of tens of thousands of new cases each and, and every day in the United States until we get to that point? where we can have the majority of the population vaccinated? Yeah, it's endemic in wow. the communities that we serve. And so that's why masking is still really important. Um, that's why uh, testing is still important because we've got to stay on top of the variants that we're seeing uh, coming out. Um, but uh, that combination of, of masking, social distancing, the things that Dr. Fauci talks about, and then getting as much vaccine out as quickly as possible those are the tickets that, that we need to get back to uh, a state and get this economy completely open. Right. I heard you, you know, we heard you say, you know, kind of we stay at this or the plateaus until we get more vaccines out. What are you hearing about the supply chain uh, and getting access to more vaccines? So uh, right right now, uh, uh, you know, here in New Jersey, uh, we've been at this vaccine um, since uh, the beginning of the year. And um you know, we've got uh, about almost uh, 20% of uh, folks have had either a first or second vaccine uh, in New Jersey. 
Uh, here at the Atlantic Health System, uh, we've distributed over, two, we've vaccinated over 200,000 people um, already. Uh, we have 800,000 people on our waiting list. Wow. And uh, right now we're doing about six to 7,000 vaccinations a day at our 11 centers. But we're prepared to go to 10,000 a day as soon as we get the supply. And so the supply um, is on its way. Um, I think uh, the combination of the steps that uh, the Biden administration has taken to use the, the, their power to uh, get the vaccine uh, manufactured, uh, the fact that we now have three vaccines that uh, work um, uh, equally well on the most important thing, which is getting really sick or dying, uh, is an important piece. And because we have a vaccine like J&J, &J, which is a different format, and it's a one-shot vaccine, it gives us uh, a lot of opportunities to get more portable with that vaccine and to get into places that, that we haven't been able to serve yet. Um, and uh, we're excited about that. You meant, heard me mention that Ohio is expanding vaccines to anyone over the age of, of 16. We, we learned that earlier today from Governor Mike DeWine. Alaska has already done that uh, for people live, living and working in the state. Is that something you see as the essential next step to get over the next hurdle? Yeah, you know, um, here in New Jersey, um, we've gone through different iterations of, of expanding the pool. But uh, what that's done is it's created the waiting list, quite frankly, because we don't have the supply yet to be able to serve the demand that gets created. So, you know, we have over 4.7 million people eligible for a vaccination right now. So, uh, you know, I understand why states are, are, you know, kind of just completely opening up. But, you know, you've got to be smart about this and set priorities or else you're just increasing a queue. And uh, so I think the way that New Jersey's doing this is making sense. Most recently, we've added teachers, uh, which are really important. I know at one of our mega centers that we do in conjunction with the state and the Morris County, New Jersey, you know, we just went over our 100,000 uh, patients uh, oh. and that happened to be a teacher. Uh, from Morris County, New York, or New Jersey. So, yeah. I, you know, again, I think uh, broadening the pool is good, but you've got to make sure that the supply keeps up with it. Hey, so Brian, one thing we wanted to ask you, um, Tim and I, you know, we were noting that this Friday, we are seeing restaurants in New York, in New Jersey, they are able to increase their capacity in a big way. So we are increasingly seeing our society and our economy opening up good on one hand, but I do wonder as somebody who oversees this massive healthcare system and can see how quickly it can get overwhelmed, does it worry you a little bit? And what are you worried about? You know, Carol, it, it does it does worry us uh, a bit. Um, but one of the things that I have confidence in is that uh, here in New Jersey, we've been following the science mm -hmm. and we've been pretty careful, uh, you know, and I think, uh, I think there's been some criticisms uh, about that. So I'm confident that uh, beginning to gradually reopen things like restaurants and um, uh, other venues, uh, it's an important part of, of getting back to a, a, a normal, uh, and uh, I support it. But we also have to stay pretty vigilant, and we have to do uh, testing, and we have to do contact tracing when we do see outbreaks, and then take the appropriate actions. But again, if people use common sense, wear a mask, um, wash their hands, uh, stay socially distanced, uh, you can you can um, go into restaurants and, and you can begin to enjoy time with your family. And I loved what the CDC did uh, this week, trying to clarify some of the changes 
uh, that we can um, undertake if um, um, you know all sides are are vaccinated. I think that that really helps uh, a lot of families begin to reunite and uh, bring things back to normal. Specifics, it really helps us all. Hey, how about all of your teams within the massive Atlantic Health System? Will they be wearing masks? I mean, they wear masks an awful lot in hospitals anyway, but do you foresee that it becomes the norm much longer term, just in case? Yeah, you know, right now, about 64% of our workforce has gotten vaccinated. Um, and, um, you know, we've had a, a full court press on that since the beginning of the year. And um, uh, with the J&J vaccine now available, we're going to see that jump up because um, uh, there were some people that were waiting uh, for a single shot in that type of uh, platform. Hmm. Um, but, um, you know, to us, a mask is essential for a couple of reasons. One is it works. And then the second is it's symbolically important to people. Um, that they're in a safe environment and we care about their health. Um, and um, so, yeah, we're going to keep that in place. Brian, I, I want to ask you about the Atlantic's COVID Recovery Center. It's a multidisciplinary health and medical approach to help those people who ha- are these so-called long haulers, COVID long haulers. What are you learning about, about these so-called long haulers? Yeah, so um, uh, what, what, we're, what we're learning first and foremost is that um, they're younger than uh, we might expect. Because remember, at the beginning of this process, uh, it was long-term care facilities and uh, older folks with a lot of uh, medical comorbidities. But these younger folks that, that uh, where the virus stays with them and, and has a, a lot of impact have been pretty significant. You know, I was out uh, visiting that center uh, a, a couple of weeks ago, and uh, I remember talking to one of the physicians where we had a, a young, we had a cohort of younger patients in their 30s who um, would walk about maybe, uh, you know, 40 steps, 50 steps, and their oxygen levels would drop dramatically. Wow. Mm. Um, and they looked otherwise normal on, on some of their other uh, tests. So uh, this virus is tricky. Um, that center was put in place to deal with complexity of this uh, virus. Uh, because it's hard to treat it in a primary care office. And, um, you know, we have, I think, uh, four or 500 patients that um, uh, routinely we care for in that setting. Wow, that's a lot. All right, Brian, listen, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. And uh, good luck to you and your teams. And I'm sure we'll be uh, talking with you again over the next few months. Brian Granulotti, he's Chief Executive Officer at the Atlantic Health System uh, on the phone from Morristown, New Jersey. And, you know, a reminder, too, because we do think everything's getting a lot better, but a reminder that they've got a bunch of patients in their hospital system that still have COVID. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. So food delivery, so many of us ordered during the pandemic. Uh, and as we were doing that, Tim, a lot of consolidation was also going on in the global food delivery business. It's honestly difficult for me to keep it straight. At least here in the U.S., I don't really have loyalty to one particular food delivery platform. We were just talking about that. I'm just like, okay, I'll order from any of them. So there is a great story in the upcoming issue of the magazine about this one little known Dutch company that now has its sites on the U.S. specifically. It's online and on the Bloomberg. It's going to be on newsstands later in the week. Let's get to it. Joining us is Natalie Drozdiak. She's Bloomberg News European tech reporter on the phone in Brussels, along with Bloomberg Businessweek editor Jill Weber on the phone in Brooklyn. All right, Jill. 
title, this company, I want to know more, and it's not just because the uh, founder seems kind of good looking. I'm just going to put that out there. <laughs> so, <Sorry>. Just Eat <laughs> Takeaway is uh, the name of the company, and yeah, you're, you're probably right. If you're American, you have not heard of these, this, this shop, but you have heard about the deals because um, you're, you're right, uh, Carol and, and Tim, um, that you know there really has been um, not much allegiance to platform. There's been a ton of competition there, and everybody started buying each other. And Grubhub got purchased by these guys. And what we're about to see is something that I think is um, uh, something that you don't see often, which is a European tech company buying its way into America and then basically uh, go into mat go into the mattresses in a in a very competitive um, American marketplace, and you know it remains to be determined what that will look like. This landscape after the pandemic ends. So, so Natalie, what do we what do we need to uh, know about um, uh, Just Eat Takeaway and its billionaire uh, a CEO? Cute billionaire. Can I just put that in there? Okay, go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> Besides being good, good looking, <laughs> um, so he's forty-two years old. He's a Dutch entrepreneur, now billionaire. Um, he founded this company at the age of twenty-one, so he's been around for for a long, long time. Um, you know, he has a bit of a cocky persona in public. Um, he doesn't shy away from taking down his competitors a bit. Um, but, you know, I think the competitors sometimes say it's with merit because he's he's effectively conquered the European markets over the past few years. And his whole playbook has been about using the profits that he's um, made by, by dominating certain markets and then reinvesting them as he expands into new places. And so now he wants to do the exact same thing in the U.S. with the Scrubhub deal. Okay, easier said than done, though, right, when it comes to the, the United States. As you write, there are distinct challenges to the market here. Some cities have passed these caps on, on the fees that companies can charge restaurants. I know there is a movement to actually order directly from restaurants because consumers mm -hmm. are becoming aware of just how much of a fee some of these delivery companies take. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess the one thing that's important to keep in mind is that he um, wants to differentiate his model from his competitors. So basically he says the way they do it is more profitable than, than say, Uber, DoorDash, uh, a delivery in, in the UK. And basically it's because they are focusing on connecting drivers to the restaurants and then letting the restaurants deliver themselves. Um, they're also like Uber and DoorDash, um, you know, having drivers pick up the food um, and deliver that to, the, to the, the customers at home, but that is more costly for the platform. Um, that being said, yeah, as you mentioned, you know, all these companies are being affected by the, the caps, um, fees that they can charge uh, restaurants for, for delivery. Um, and you know that's also limited the revenue that they, they can make, which is which has been a problem for them. Um, you know, in terms of, of finally becoming profitable, there is still right. you know, a lot of these platforms are struggling with that. Um, but, but yeah, so they're going to have to invest in a big way to to compete with DoorDash and Uber. Natalia, I get the feel though from your reporting uh, on this guy that his, you say there's a line, Grown's recipe for success involves spending heavily and playing rough. I mean, this guy isn't afraid of kind of taking it to the mat here. Yeah, I think one of the most interesting things, um, you know, about this, this sector is just how cutthroat it is. Um, you know, there's 
this this consolidation trend has been going on for several years. So, um, you know, this deal speculation is fueling uh, lots of rumors and players always undermining each other, that kind of thing. And in the early days of Takeaway.com's history, we heard from um, some folks who said that, that some of the employees peeled off their rival stickers from the restaurant windows <laughs> and then used special glue for their own uh, stickers so that those would be harder to remove. It's just, you know, I'm not sure if that's still going on today, but it just shows how competitive and cutthroat the, the industry is. You know, I want to ask uh, Natalia about the the way that they employ workers because that's different than the model that we see usually in the U.S. And, and Grubhub has actually said something different than what he does. So, so how do we expect this to play out now that we know, um, yeah. you know, Prop Twenty Two is going to, you know, be a bit cast a little bit of a shadow over delivery in general? Yeah, this has been really interesting because Just Eat Takeaway. Um, differentiates itself from from the competitors uh, by hiring its drivers, not by just um, making them independent contractors like most other platforms do. And he's frankly been been quite uh, um, snobbish about it in Europe. You know, he's he's uh, you know publicly questioned whether the competitors are breaching European laws by not employing drivers. Um, and as you said, Grubhub has has warned that classifying drivers in the U.S. as employees could harm its business. Um, so, you know, when I asked him about this on the earnings call last week, you know, mm-hmm. what, what's he going to do in the U.S.? Is he going to continue that model? Right. He seemed more open to it. Um, so it clearly hasn't been decided, but, you know, he thinks that if things are done differently in the U.S., they they may be able to do it that way as well. Well, it's a really good story, some deep reporting, and uh, really opens up a company that we're all not familiar with. Natalia, thank you so much. Joel, thanks. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes' Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. So we often talk about shopping and buying local, certainly some, you know, supporting small business as, as a consumer. Well, the same can be true, Tim, when it comes to city and state governments also thinking and buying local when it comes to their supply chains. Yeah, and there are local officials working on this right now. As Nick Leiber in his most recent piece for Bloomberg Business Week, a contributor to the magazine, joins us right now on the phone from Brooklyn, along with Demetria Cassinides, editor at Bloomberg News, joining us on the phone from New York. So Demetria, let's start with you. What was it about this story and aspect of small business that kind of piqued your interest? Well, as with all of what we do, um, I think it was another line of support and ways to really help small businesses figure out how to tap more resources. And I liked that um, that the business that we highlight in the beginning of the story is really focused on working with local and regional governments. You know, when you hear about contracting and government contracts, you, you know, you tend to think federal contracts are the big ones. They probably pay out a lot more. But there is a lot, a lot of procurement that's happening on a much more local level, which makes a lot more sense for small businesses in some ways. So it was very appealing for that reason. And it was just compelling to see how much the business had grown that, um, you know, that Paola Santana had started a few years ago. So Nick Liber, come on in here and tell us a little bit about who Paola Santana is and, and, and what she's been able to do. Um, Paola Santana is an entrepreneur who is very creative, very driven. She started a few business. Her first business was a drone logistics business called Matternet. And her second business, the one we're talking about right now, um, 
is a really interesting business called Social Glass, which he started back in 2017. And basically the idea is to make it easier for government workers to do their jobs. And she's really focused right now on procurement. She's saying, you know, there are all these, um, all these government agencies, community colleges, towns, cities, they're all talking, hey, we need to support small business. We should, you know, set up a, a grant program or set up a way to encourage shoppers to buy from the local businesses. But she's saying, you know, what, make, what may make even more sense is if you, dear government, um, officials, <laughs> buyers, sim- simply, bought, simply bought from some of these businesses. Rather than order your cleaning supplies from big business X, why not order your cleaning supplies from smaller business Y? And that's really what she's trying to do. And it's a tricky kind of marketplace to set up because you have to convince both government buyers to give you the time of day and you have to convince busy small business owners to give you the time of day. But she's been she's been plugging away in it and she's and she's it's starting to get to really get some traction. Well, listen, and it you know, Nick, it, it goes back to this idea money talks. And money makes a difference. And when you're very deliberate and thoughtful about where you're spending your money or where you're allocating your supply chain, whether it's creating more diversity in that supply chain or whether trying to help your local small businesses, this can make a difference. Right. And and cities uh, across the country have been making more and more noises about directing more and more of their dollars to different types of business, locally owned businesses, uh, women owned businesses, Black-owned businesses, and this uh, this marketplace could help them because not only can you search for, say, cleaning products, but you can also say, and I'm looking for a veteran-owned business that mm-hmm. will supply us with cleaning products and laptops. So it gives you this sort of granularity that's kind of exciting. I mean, if, as exciting as government procurement could be, you know, too. But, but it, you know, it's pretty powerful. Well, I did learn in your, your story, Nick, that there is such thing as a master's degree in government procurement law. I had no idea that existed. So there are a lot of people who do find it very interesting. And no, this story is... Deal. It's hundreds of millions of dollars. Yeah, know, and the story is... You know, governments in the U.S. are spending hundreds of millions of dollars at the state and local level on this stuff. So it's, you know, it's a lot of money and it's a, you know, it's a, it's a science, well, it's an art, it's all you know, new, but... The small businesses are there. Again, what Nick has highlighted is that they exist. The businesses exist, but sometimes it's very hard to find the business. And she's been really smart in setting something up that's going to connect the procurement officers to precisely the type of products and businesses that they need. It's not that those businesses aren't out there. They're out there, and they're ready to take these contracts on also. You know, when you need to source stuff, sometimes it makes a lot more sense to do it locally in terms of timelines and deliveries and availability of inventory and all that kind of stuff. So. Um, it should make a meaningful difference. No, that's a really good point, um, you know, Demetra, that there's, it exists. It's just a case of often either the infrastructure isn't in place or people don't even think about it or, or, or know to kind of look more locally. Um, one last question, Nick, in terms of governments, are they thinking more about this um, or making mandates to do just that, to say to, you know, governments, you've got to, you've got to buy locally. Yeah, that's, that's something that, um, that's, definitely been happening it's been happening because of pressure saying hey you know you're really not buying enough from local businesses or from black owned businesses let's put something in place to try to make it happen so there've been there've been there's been goal setting in Boston and Philadelphia and Virginia 
in, in different places to, to try to do exactly that, which, um, which in theory should help these smaller businesses. Yeah, out of, you know, out of times of crisis, right? People are figuring out things to maybe improve the system, and certainly when it comes to small business and, and local business. Hey, guys, thank you so much. Nick Leiber, contributor at Bloomberg Business Week on the phone from Brooklyn. Dimitra Kessanides, editor at Bloomberg News. And check out more stories from the Small Business Survival Guide. You can find that at Bloomberg.com. You know, it, it seems like a no-brainer for local politicians, right? Support yeah. the communities that, that, you, that you govern over. That- right. <laughs> Right, like it this, makes total sense. Like, it, just think about the benefits as a result of it. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home, honey? Please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, just about 10 minutes left in today's trading session. Bouncing around, as Charlie mentioned, a little bit, call it flat on the S&P, a little bit lower. Dow down about 96 points. NASDAQ up 28 Great to have back with us is Vinny Catalano. He is Chief Market Strategist at Stuyvesant Capital Management. He's joining us on the phone from New Jersey. Vinny, nice to have you back. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? Doing okay. Hanging in there. Looking forward to a second half of the year. Have you gotten a vaccine? I have. Ah. Actually, I have. And uh, the second shot did have an effect uh, a little bit more than the first one did. And uh, Benadryl is pretty amazing. (laughs) (laughs) That is so true. That is so true. Um, All right. Uh, And there's a couple trading days that we've certainly had already this year that maybe a little Benadryl might have been needed uh, just to take us out of our, our misery. How do you see the market trade right now? Well, the market is clearly overvalued by any traditional method, and and that's kind of what I thought we might explore a little bit. Sure. You know, what happened to fair value? What happened to assets being valued on the basis of their future cash flows and discounted back to the present value and all of that? And, you know, a lot of investors, if, if, if you don't have some kind of an anchor, in which you can look at and say, okay, this is where stocks generally ought to be, uh, trading at, uh, you know, and you can use P.E. ratios for something like that, well, then what do you have? I mean, things are unmoored and unhinged and unanchored, and uh, and it's difficult. So what do you do in that kind of environment? And uh, that that's sort of the thing that uh, I thought maybe we might explore a little bit. So when did this happen in, in this this cycle? Well, the cycle really started, let's say, going back to, and and it's done this repeatedly in the past, it goes back to uh, from the great financial crisis and uh, the flood of money that that came after that. And every time the Fed tried to do something during QE to infinity, uh, the market threw a, a, a tantrum. And with that, you know, enough investors felt that they were backstopped uh, by the central bank, not just here in the United States, but throughout the world. And it just accelerated and it became more and more and more so until the point where now we have financial engineering uh, on top of uh, risk of, on on top of greater risk in general, and it's just uh, expanded out to the point where, you know, you were just talking a little bit uh, a while ago about nifties and NFTs mm-hmm. and all yeah. of that sort of thing, and it's just uh, it, it's an 
the movie No Country for Old Men is apt <laughs> for the environment no. we're in. This is no country for anyone who doesn't get the, you know, the transformed nature of, of the way things are today. But wait, transformation and innovation and disruption can be a good thing, Vinny. So what is it specifically that, you know, because I do feel like there's there's SPACs, there's NFTs, there's a lot of things going on, there's the meme stocks, and then there's the rest of the market where, sure. you know, we're seeing a trade where increasingly or someone, whether you believe it or, you know, whether you like what she's doing or not, there's a Kathy Wood that really is looking at a company's business and doing the research and thinking about what the company is, you know, down the road. So, you know, help me help me out a little bit, dig a little bit deeper for me. Okay. Creative destruction is a good thing. Uh, not for the companies that are being destroyed or the markets that are being destroyed, but it is generally a good thing and it's and it's part of the of the necessary process of capitalism uh, in its uh, evolutionary stage. The problem that many investors, I believe, have is that you're looking for a some kind of benchmark from which to work. So it isn't just you know a car company selling at 1,600 times earnings that's an issue, or a, a stock that, you know, is uh, basically the company is defunct and their stores are, you know, not selling a whole heck of a lot, and the stock is valued at $1 to $5 a share by traditional methods, and it's selling for $200, $300 a share. I mean, those kind of things, it, it's not isolated to that. It's, it's a broad, wide spectrum. And the difficulty for investors is how do you manage a portfolio that engages in in that kind of behavior when everything is kind of up for grabs. So um, a, a big element of it, like I just mentioned, a big element of this is the fact that the stock market, unlike the private equity market and the private markets in general, the stock market has one feature that the other markets don't have, and that is liquidity. Easy in easy out. And if you can get in and you can get out very easily, then why not, if there's an excess amount of capital floating around, anything goes. I guess the question is, and we only have about 30 seconds left, excuse me, is Mm -hmm. is, how do you, you you talked about the challenges of portfolio construction in an environment like this. I mean, what are you doing? Uh, Sound investment principles in general, manage your portfolio according to percentages. And if you want to put a certain amount of money in something that you want to take a shot, do it, but do it with less than 10% of your money. And an example of that would be, you know, for a trend that might uh, uh, develop into uh, something more substantial for a a quality company, look at a stock like Volkswagen. All right. Yeah, which we talked about earlier. Hey, listen, Vinny, we got to run. Vinny Catalano, he is Chief Market Strategist at Stuyvesant Capital Management with us on the phone in New Jersey. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. And you can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News.